All right, welcome to another edition of the FNC Roundtable. Um, today, again, joined by Tom and Mac. And this week, Mac bought a topic, and we want to talk about does a good rig make a good coach? Uh, Mac, since you brought it up, do you want to, I guess, intro the topic? Okay, does a good rig or physique make a good coach? Um, this is a really tough one I've thought a lot about over the years. And coming from the Sydney personal training background, that was my original I guess, foot in the door of the health industry. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Now, I think that it makes a difference because, but not in the fact, I think it's less about what your rig looks like and whether you've lived it, whether you've been through a fat loss phase, whether you've spent time tracking your macros, whether you've, you know, even had experiences of maybe even struggling with, your body weight or shape or trying to, you know, change something about that or being, you know, a real frother for training nutrition and uh, implementing different approaches to try and enhance your training performance or enjoyment. Um, so, and all of these things tend to kind of like you'll look like your physique can often to a degree reflect those interests or those past behaviors or phases of your nutrition. So I don't necessarily think being a good coach is a matter of having just having a good physique. You obviously have to know what underpins like nutrition recommendations and you have to have that formal education, what have you. But I think it kind of signifies that you've, you know, you've been in the trenches. You're not just someone who's read a textbook and then basically reciting that to clients. You've actually been through it yourself and you understand what it feels like in the real world. And I think having that perspective, that that understanding towards what clients might be going through, um, and also just that critical thinking of how things you learn apply to the real world, I think that is is a really important thing. And, and like I said, I think there will be a degree of reflection in one's physique there. It probably doesn't lend itself to, you know, that whole idea of walking the walk. But with that being said, you don't need to be a shredded Adonis. Um, I just think, you know, if, if, like, for example, if someone was, you know, let's say uh, you were looking for a personal trainer and someone was, you know, heavily overweight, but then they lost a meaningful amount of body weight. They were still classed as an overweight person, but they'd made a massive change and used nutrition to um, you know, move their health forwards. For me, that is something that is really valuable. And that person doesn't have that Adonis-like physique, but they've they've been through it themselves. They've lived it. I think that lived it style experience is, is quite key. Yeah, I agree with that, Mac. And I often sort of frame that as it matters about what your change is relative to yourself as opposed to where you are in absolute terms. I think particularly, I think if, if we were to, to really straw man and pay out the coach who has like a really good rig but isn't very good at their job, I think in a lot of cases that's because that has come relatively easily to them. Like sure, it might have required effort, but from like an intellectual and um thinking about how we apply things basis, it hasn't been as hard for them to obtain that goal. Whereas like you said, in the case of if you've got someone who was someone who had a very significant amount of obesity and has made a really big change to that, they may never be super chiseled, super shredded, but I would argue they're far more equipped and they have walked the walk quite a bit more. 
Well, I'm glad you guys started because if I was to start that topic, I would have just said, does a good rig make a good coach? No. No. And there's examples of like coaches that have really good rigs and very chiseled physiques that I believe would be terrible coaches. And there's there's coaches that, are, that might have what's classed as an average rig, but they would that would be an absolutely fantastic coach. I think like as we know, we look at deep health and total health a lot with um, what we do at FMC and physical health is only one part of, of the, I guess, of the pie in this situation, right? And like I think a coach having a really chiseled rig shows that they really value their, their how, how they look and, how, like, and their physique, but it doesn't actually show me anything else that they value. It doesn't show me that they value learning. It doesn't show me that they value um I guess, upskilling the personal side of things as well. And I think this topic comes at a really good time because last week I did a workshop um, through Dr. Gary Mendoza, which we have both done workshops through before. Um, and he's taught us a lot and he's helped FNC a lot, helped us become better coaches. And he actually shared these eight things, eight skills that of like effective coaches. And none of them at all mention having a good physique or having a good rig, right? It's things like accurate empathy, and empathy just means that you can understand where the client's going from, that you have the imagination that you can really feel and understand them. Like, but you don't have to have, you don't actually, you don't actually have to have walked through their shoes. Other things like acceptance, positive regard, genuineness, focus, hope and expectation, evoking, offering information and advice, right? And respecting autonomy when you do that as well. Um, again, none of that has anything to do with about like with your physique at all and i think sometimes we might even see those guys that have the really good physiques might be more of the tough love coach and they don't have the positive regard they don't have the acceptance they don't have the hope or the empathy as well which i would then say that makes them a poor coach yeah and i think the point you've raised there josh about empathy is really at the crux of it right because if i can eat my own words i think even an individual who has had a massive impact on themselves and changed their life a lot, they may run the risk of thinking that that becomes the way to change everyone's life and that is the set of solutions. But alternatively, if you act with some empathy, have a bit of compassion and actually sort of let yourself think critically about how best to help people, you're already 10 steps ahead in terms yeah. of trying to become a good coach. Yeah, and that's when we see the coach gets like quite frustrated. It's like, you know, like I don't know why someone isn't into the gym or why they wouldn't make these sacrifices in order to get their steps in or or to track their macros. That that would be quite frustrating because like they did it, they they got all these amazing results. Why wouldn't someone else want to do that? And it's just not how it works. Having a good physique alone is not going to make a good coach for all the reasons that we've mentioned before. But in my view, it signifies practical experience. Like they've lived through the things, like they've lived through a phase of nutrition and actually they know, you know, they might not know what it feels like in, in your position or they they might not know, uh, have that empathy to using different strategies that might suit you. They, they run the risk of applying just like, oh, it worked for me, therefore it's going to work for everyone else, as Tom mentioned. But for me, it shows that they have some degree of real-world experience. They, for example, knows what know what it's like to be hungry during a dieting phase. And I think this is important when guiding clients because you think about what it actually will feel like in the real world. You know, we think about, well, let's apply it to training, okay? Um, 
if you have someone who never trains, they might write a program like, you know, five sets of 12 body weight pull-ups. And for most people, that might not be really a viable thing because they haven't actually experienced trying to do that in the real world. They're not privy to this. And it kind of creates, uh, I guess, expectations or uh, strategies that just aren't really that practically applicable. Um, so, yeah, a physique is in everything, but it I think it plays a small role in having kind of like an understanding of how something might look or feel like in the real world. And the other point I want to make is I think, you know, we can read all the textbooks, we could do all the degrees, all the master's degrees, we can watch all the educational videos, whatever it is. But, you know, if we haven't actually gotten in that car and learned how to drive manual and done it, then we're probably never going to be absolutely an expert at it. So I think there's a lot to be said again there about not only having the knowledge, but also practicing and applying it to yourself as a bit of a guinea pig. Yeah, and I think if we look at things like self-determination theory, one of those uh, components is relatedness. So, yeah, you can have a sense of relatedness to the client, but also the clients know that you can relate to them as well, which could help them feel, again, a bit more connected and can help them, I guess, Im- improve their levels of like internal motivation as well. Yeah, and I actually think that that, that point can be an issue with a co- coach having like a, a mad rig is because it might create this uh, lack of relatedness or block relatedness from the client's perspective. Oh, how would that person know? No, that person wouldn't know what it feels like to be overweight. Look at them. You know, they've never struggled with their weight. And I think that's also something to consider as well. Yeah, that's why I deliberately make sure my rig's not very good. So I'm just more approachable and I'm able to help more people. Um, Because naturally I sit at like 4% and it's very difficult. Well, um, actually, Tom, uh, my approach is to be an Adonis that I am and I coerce clients to sign up with me because they want to be like me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, different strategies for different folks. This is just what works for me. Well, this, I think we're about to take a bit of a, a bit of a turn here. Um, but I don't think you'll ever see many FMC coaches, except maybe Mac every now and then, posting hopeless photos on their Instagram feeds and I think, yeah, I was going to say, if we all look like Mac, I think we'd all be posting topless photos. Yeah. In our feeds, oh, of we? course. That explains yeah, but, itself. Yeah, but this, this, like for me, I'm like, okay, is it sucking the potential clients in to think, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. They're going to be a good coach because of how they look. Like, are they potentially fooling people? I know we said like, yes, it's good to go through the lived experience and you know, like, You've been in the trenches before, but it doesn't mean that you totally understand that client, okay? Because, yeah, like, that that's like, again, I, I love the saying, like, coach the person, not the problem. Like, yeah, the problem is fat loss. That's the goal. And even if all your clients have a fat loss goal and you've achieved fat loss and you, you know, are quite a lean person, it doesn't mean you know how to solve their unique problems either as well. So I think that's that's where we can, I guess, fall into that little bit of a trap and even the the potential client could fall into a trap of looking at someone and their Instagram feed and it's all just them either in bikinis or lingerie or whatever it might be or just get, getting their rigs out for the, for the lads. Like they might go, oh, yeah, I want to be like them, so I'm going to work under them. And they're going to show me how to, how to look like that. But it's just not how, that's not how coaching really works. Speaking from a very anecdotal perspective here, coming from the Sydney personal training background, like I mentioned before, the personal trainer who looks the best in on the gym floor will 100% get clients just because I want to train with the person who looks the best. 
And that can be for numerous different reasons, but often it's, well, look at them, they must be doing something right. And I think that can get a lot of clients in the door. And I speculate quite strongly that that's the case with a lot of the quote unquote online coaches who, you know, are posting all those rig shots of them in in their, their freaking peak week or whatever. But what's happening once they sign up? It's sort of like you see those those coaching business coaches on social media. They're like, get you know fifty new clients this weekend and get an extra ten k. It's like, okay, so all these people signed up. Now what? You know, they don't have the empathy. They don't have the understanding. They're not willing to put the time or mental resources into getting to know their clients and consider what strategies might be best suited to them. Um, and and you're probably going to end up in the client, you know, sort of being in that position where they feel shameful because they haven't adhered to, quote, unquote, the tools that the coach has provided them with. And like I said, because the, the coach isn't going to have that empathy, it's going to be on the client to, uh, it's on you because you didn't follow those strategies that I told you to do. And we create shame. We have strategies that aren't applicable to the clients. Um, we have non-adherence. And then ultimately what was, you know, a positive thing in the beginning, hey, I'm signing up with this new coach, was very, very short-lived and or it didn't really yield much of a positive outcome. Yeah, so we see a vicious cycle here, right? These these co- they're, they're average coaches to begin with with a, a superior rig, let's say, right? They get an influx of clients. They have a really, really big workload. So they don't have time to upskill as a coach. So they don't get any better as a coach. Their interpersonal skills don't improve either. Their expertise don't improve because they're, again, they're not learning more about the people skill side of things. They're not learning how to become a better coach. They're getting poor results. And also they just spend too much fucking time in the gym rather than like upskilling their rig than upskilling their, their coaching skills. Yeah. And and I, I, sorry, Tom, you go. You go, mate. Oh, cheers. Um, well, and I don't think... I think it's important we probably don't portray this discussion as us slamming people who are putting time into their rig and who do care about those things and do. Because I think the the natural rebuttal I know some individuals will have to this discussion, not going to name names, um, will be like, oh, like these guys think like improving your rig is stupid. They don't actually value hard work um, or training, which which is like simply not the case, right? But I think like what that's a lot more about is are we like is is the photo of ourselves on the internet the thing which is actually attracting people to us? And is that potentially attracting people to us for the wrong reasons? Whereas is us sharing information about how and why we think the thing which is attracting people to us? Like I and I guess like it's the same with photos of us as is as it is with photos of our clients. Something I often find myself swinging back and forth on is when to share client results slash if I do it all, because sometimes even though I think it can be really good from a business perspective, it doesn't always necessarily entice people for the right reasons. And I think it opens the door a lot more to a bit more of a toxic comparison or like misattribution of like why your protocol is working well. Um, because honestly, some people just do well because they were always going to do well. Um, and that's independent of who they're being, co- being coached by or how they coach. Shit. I think marketing yourself through having a fantastic rig is conducive to a get rich quick scheme for coaching where you get heaps of clients. You're, you're the freaking man or the girl 
and you know there's all this hype around you you've got all these clients because you've got so many clients you know it's not going to be client-centered coaching it's going to be you know relatively generic uh minimal time spent on each client it's going to be very high volume might even be something like an ebook program or something of that nature and um, whilst this will get you a lot of cash relatively quick, you'll go through clients really, really fast. And I don't think it's conducive to longevity. I think the approach where you put out good information, you're clearly in the game because you genuinely want to help. Um, I think consistently doing good work with clients as well, because from a marketing perspective, undeniably consistently doing good work and the referrals and all that sort of stuff that comes with that is in my opinion, the most strong uh, marketing strategy there is. And I think all of these approaches carry a lot more longevity. And if you're in this nutrition game because you love it, you genuinely love it, you want to do it forever um, and you want to help people, then it's a no-brainer to adopt the approach that A, is going to get better client satisfaction, B, is going to reduce the instance of comparison, C, is going to create stronger bonds between client and coach or strengthen that client-coach relationship, uh, and finally, it's just going to have more longevity for you as a career. You know, it's funny because we mentioned this cycle of coaching where it's like you're that it guy or that it girl. You've got heaps of clients, you know, and then once they've built up a bit of a saving, um, they get bored of it. They decide to go and, you know, become a property investor or something, or they decide to become a boss business babe or bloke because they're too good for coaching now and they need that shiny new toy because just going through the motions of doing these repeated three-minute macro coach check-ins becomes a little bit mundane and boring and they need a bit of a spark and and I, I do wonder to what degree that's an artifact of this idea that in the fitness industry i think we have, we have this very weird attachment to the idea that if you have a good rig or if you are strong or whatever therefore you should coach people like it's in no other field like if i, I love playing the guitar no one's like, yeah, Tom, you should teach people the guitar. People are like, no, like, that's your hobby. You enjoy it. And, and I think that's part of it with fitness, right, is people come in late teens, early 20s, um, sometimes earlier, they get a lot of positive reinforcement over it. And then it's almost as if the next natural step is to start training other people. And it hasn't actually been interrogated as, is this actually a thing you value and is this actually a thing you want? Or are you just sort of chasing the continual uh, like hedonic treadmill of more clients, more clients, you know, more gym time, better rig, all those things? Yeah. And I think like we said on the podcast last time, like, you know, it's important to remember that coaching is a people job first. It's not about, it's not just a training and nutrition job. So you've got to make sure that you want to work with people in the first place. Um, and just like kind of going back to what you mentioned before about Tom, about like, you know, some people might say to us, oh, you know, these blokes don't even train hard or, or whatever it might be is like, okay, like we all have different values and I just value being a better coach than I do my rig. Like I still am a healthy person, but I look at my deep health, my, my, yes, my physical health. I feel like I'm a very physically healthy person. I'm not fucking shredded, but shredded people also aren't super healthy or they, so that they may not be super healthy, right? It's, it's not, not an absolute given. I also value my social health, my emotional health, my intellectual health right? My career, I value my clients, I value learning, I value upskilling. Like those are the things that I value beyond just how I look. And no. I just think uh, hopefully coaches out there as well value coaching 
and upskilling and caring about their clients more than spending like multiple hours in the gym. Uh, Josh, sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna attack you with the Chad homonym here. Um, I have vomited more times than I can count in training. Um, like I train hard, like, and I think that that is. I just think it's not a very good rebuttal. It's not a very good refutation. Doesn't actually engage with any of the points at hand. Um, it's a bit of a no, because I'm I'm trying not to specifically target people, but I think often it's a because that people don't do anabolics, they aren't aware of what it takes, um, which I guess is a bigger problem for the fitness industry, right? There are plenty of skinny natural people who are training really hard. Like, hell, I'd even say lifting weights isn't a very hard training modality. Um, like anyone who's played team sport has almost certainly, or like even I don't want to say at the CrossFit, has certainly done harder sessions and many more of them than your average bodybuilder. Like, I think that's hard in a different way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling it. I'm refuting the belittlement of other things. Yeah. And hard is relative, right? It's sometimes hard. A hard workout is showing up to the gym Mm. on a day where you're really busy and you're tired and maybe you don't want to go. Like that's, that's a win. That's very relative. I think that's like, you know, when, when people are saying these things, like these blokes don't even train hard or, you know, they're, they're making those kind of um, claims. Again, it just shows a bit of lack and lack of empathy and understanding. I think if you've, I think if you've been someone who has been active all through your childhood and teenage years and you got into the gym early and you also couple that with fantastic genetics and you looked apart, um, you know, it's not just to say that you didn't have to work hard for it, but it's something that is it comes easy for you because you enjoy it. It aligns with your values. Um, you're getting a lot of a pra- like appraisal for it um, or praise for it rather. And I think... In, for these situations, even though the training itself can still be very, very hard, it's going to be easier for someone like that as opposed to someone who's, say, you know, in their 40s who has never had an active lifestyle, was never good at sport, never interested in it, has other values, but is like, you know, I want to lose weight because my health is compromised and or, you know, whatever other reason is it. And I, it is. And I think the coaches who had the former mentioned situation, they're not going to be able to very easily put themselves in the shoes of that sort of 40 year old client that I mentioned before. And I think um, this is actually an instance where having experience in the trenches and, you know, um, not just being someone who's read the textbook, but actually done it yourself. I think this is where issues arise. Um, so I think it can both go both ways. Like I said before, you know, someone who's actually experienced what it's like to do a really hard workout isn't going to program something that is obviously beyond feasible because they kind of can imagine what that would sort of feel and look like in the real world. But in the same time, you know, if 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 it aligns with your values and it's been easy for you to do, but that's not the case for one of your clients, um, you won't be able to like sort of understand their perspective or where they're coming from. I think that is a shortcoming. And one other thing that I've kind of, actually observed quite recently from a few coaches is the idea that when I wasn't in shape, um, I started to see declines in inquiries or uh, I need to save up heaps of money and invest in heaps of stuff because, you know, this is a young person's game. And once I'm a little bit older and my physique starts to, to decline, then no one will want to work with me. And I think for me, in my perspective, this is the case if people 
if you're using your physique to get people to sign up and therefore people are signing up for the wrong reasons, they're signing up because they see you and they want to emulate, they want a piece of who you are. They're not signing up because they know or you portray the 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 uh, characteristics of a client-centered coach who is open to to learning who is empathetic who you know really cares about actually working with people um and i think you know i guess my rebuttal to those who say like oh my physique really matters i see less inquiries or oh i quickly need to like build up a property portfolio and passive income because like after i'm 35 i'm i'm fucked I think name that names, is Mac. Name <laughs> names. I think that is a situation where it's like, okay, it's because you've taken this route. If you took the other route, it might not be so much of a, it might be more of a slow burn. You might not be that it person and get instant gratification and instant clients and have so many clients that you've just waitlisted as the size of your arm or whatever. Um, this is this longevity thing again. It's like, do you want to be a, in terms of your career as a coach, do you want to, you know, kill it for a short period of time initially, but not really have much uh, depth to not very much fulfillment with your career, ultimately burn out and then have no longevity, but also no clients because people have only signed up to you when you're in your prime and you can't sustain that for your whole life. Or yeah. if you're someone who actually loves coaching and learning, you know, do you want to make this your forever thing? And I think if you go for the latter, this whole idea that, oh, when you're, you know, 40 years old and your physique starts to decline, like people are going to not sign up with you. I'm not sure that that's true. I really don't think that is the case because like objectively, none of us here have amazing physiques. Like we're not going to go anytime soon and stand on a bodybuilding show and win. Yet we still all have heaps of clients. You know, we've had, like, we're not, we're not struggling for clients and none of us really post pictures of our rig these days. Um, I don't know about you, Tom. Tumor. <laughs> but yeah so it's like the whole idea of oh i need to be showing my physique to get clients like it's clearly not the case because we never ever show our physique these days and we still have clients yeah it's really sad that some people they they do believe that their body is a business card but it's it's this whole idea of audience audience capture as well that i've spoken with tom about before of like you you get that bit of um you get that bit of engage. You get more engagement from those topless pictures, right? You you get more clients than topless pictures. They go shit. Like I've got to actually post more of that content rather than posting content that actually helps people, right? And then that keeps feeling the, the the need to to stay really lean and and not go out with your mates and you know not value your social and emotional health and you're only focused on your on your physique to get more clients. Like again, like Max saying, like there's. There's not much longevity in that, but what about the the detriment that it has on your mental health? To think that people only want to sign up with you for how you look, like I would, I would really hate that. Like, it's it shouldn't be a popularity contest. Mm. Like that's essentially what it, what it's becoming. It's a popularity contest. It's like you're you're voting for the prom king or, or prom queen. Like that's that's what it is. That's a pretty sad way to think about coaching. Yeah. I think the issue, another issue, which you have all already mentioned, Josh, but just to kind of glance over it or highlight it again, is that you see these photos and they look really good. They're amazing. They're great physique. People want to sign up. But it not only does it show, it doesn't show that it, not only does it not show their lack of interest in learning, being a client-centered coach, getting to know their clients, taking the time and effort to actually consider what the client wants and needs, all that sort of stuff, but it also doesn't communicate their total health. And again, coming from the personal training industry as my background and being friendly with a lot of folks in that space, 
I'll just go up right now and say that I definitely feel like there is a trend towards the better the physique, the more mentally fucked they are. Mm-hmm. And then you have the whole idea of the social health, the intellectual health, like that whole deep health thing where, you know, we've got all these different facets of what total health is. And all we're seeing in a physique photo standing on the beach is physical health, which is one small piece of the pie. It's not showing all those other areas. And you know, if you're so fixated on your physique, if you are doing the nutrition and training things that that are required to get you there, I'm almost certain that your total health isn't very balanced, okay? Because the sacrifice needed to achieve that is going to impact other areas, whether it be your social health, uh, intellectual health, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, the role of a health or fitness professional is to improve the total health of our clients and we typically will focus on physical health but we at the very least shouldn't do that at the demise or detriment of another area of social health and i think if um yeah i think this creates this issue where it's it's not about the the other parts of health are just completely not considered and they're completely neglected and if you you might improve someone's physical health you might get them say 10 kilos of weight loss and you know their physical health has improved massively but if their social health has suffered, um, if they have struggled to do their job because they've been so uh, low on fuel or whatever, then have you really actually improved their life? And, and I would argue that you know your your total health is limited by its weakest link, and therefore, no, you probably haven't. I I've got sort of two thoughts to that. I think part of me does wonder if the total health picture is like to flip the script, is that required to actually be a good coach and to do a good job? Um, but I, I also think like, I guess at the end of the day, we should aspire to not leave people worse off than they were when they came to us. Um, like I think it would be hopelessly naive to suggest that absolutely every person you see is going to have a massive improvement just because that's not how life works, even though I'd love for it to be. And I think part of why we should care about, like part of why autonomy matters, right, is that individuals need to be fully consented and fully understand what they're after so that they can make the best possible decision for themselves. And part of that may actually involve challenging some of those pre-held conceptions and pre-held ideas. Um, Sorry, I've completely blanked on where I was going with that. That's a shocker. Uh, That's right. You want to get going? No, you go, mate. You go? Hit it. Come back yet? All right. um, If if we go back to, like, so, like, a sense of relatedness and understanding your clients, right? If you you only value your your physical health, right, and, and you do that at the detriment of your social and emotional health, you might really find it hard to understand and empathize with your client who really do value on the weekend having some beers with their mates or you know going going for brunch with the girls like i see a lot of a lot of coaches who are very physique focused saying like it's fucking it's just 12 weeks just give all those things up for 12 weeks you know to to get a certain goal i'm like but what's the point like what's the point of like making progress if you if you can't do it whilst enjoying yourself and then satisfying your social and emotional health as well. Like I, I don't understand that that whole idea. Um, 
so I think like having an understanding of that that people do value those kind of things is really important. Otherwise, you're going to get quite frustrated. But you know, again, back to the whole: if I can do it, you can do it. But because some, some people do enjoy having a drink with their mates. Yeah, and I guess like part of that's also having people understand you can like you can give this up. You can also not give this up. And here are like the diversions of these are where your results are going to go as a result of that. Um, because often I think when we when people position themselves as an aspirational figure, it can also rob people of the ability to ask, oh, can I behave not like you? So like if I'm throwing up, yeah, you know, here's here's me from my last photo shoot, which was actually two years ago, because I've since gained and regained five kilos repeatedly, trying to desperately hold on to leanness. And then I tell people, hey, this, this is the system, this is how we do things they may be inclined to actually tell themselves like, oh, yeah, like, that's okay. I just won't go to the gym. I just won't go to the pub for 12 weeks. When in reality, if we actually had the conversation and sat down and went, okay, you can give this up, but here are the consequences of giving it up. These are the negatives. These are the pros. What do you think? Like, I think it puts people in a very different position to actually make responsible decisions. Respecting their autonomy again, like they're they're in control of the decision. You present the options like an agenda map, and they they get to choose based on like we've mentioned in previous calls, like uh, Matt, like decisional balance, like weighing up the pros and the cons of each behaviour. I guess another angle that sort of was alluded to there, as far as the coach not being able to empathise with the client's values or situation is, you know, what they place, the value that they place on things that might um, misalign or directly maybe contradict a physique goal. So, you know, um, coach, if someone has an amazing physique, like I said before, they're making a degree of sacrifice that is probably going to see other areas of social health, uh, total health rather suffer. For example, social health. Now, if a client comes in the door and their favourite thing in life is going having beers with their mates on a Sunday afternoon watching the UFC or the footy or whatever it is, then, you know, the coach just isn't going to understand that because they don't value it. They don't see the value in that. And they're going to have a hard time being like, why are you struggling to cut down on your alcohol consumption on a Sunday? Like it's, it's easy. Just commit to the 12 weeks and they'll, you know, but they're not understanding how much importance and value that that individual might place on that you know, Sunday afternoon beers with the boys, for example. So I think this highlights, again, another issue with coaches who have amazing physiques. Um, And, yeah, I think, um, like Tom said, when you present a decisional pro and con sort of ratio balance sheet, if you will, um, people can be put in, you know, people can feel that autonomy or that, that, um, that control to make decisions for themselves. And when they've actually considered the, that balance sheet, they're not going to go out and say something just because maybe they feel pressured to do it or they haven't thought about it properly. You know, someone might say, yeah, no worries, coach. I'll, I'll do it for 12 weeks because, but they haven't really been given the opportunity to consider, okay, well, what does that mean for the thing that I like doing every week with my friends? Am I really willing to sacrifice it? Um, so I think that's another issue. And when, and that's that, that can create this situation where people say they're going to do something then they don't do what they say. And then the coach is jumping up and down being like, Johnny said he was going to cut down on the beers, but he's not doing what he said he's going to do. Therefore, he just doesn't want it bad enough and he's not using the tools that I gave him and it's the client's fault. 
Yeah, and I, I think, to me, I think where that leads is that autonomy can't actually truly exist if you haven't interrogated things thoroughly. Um, because it's very unusual that we'd actually make decisions on like a well-thought-out rational basis. Like almost everything is reactionary. And something I like to ask people in a consult is like, oh, what was the moment when you decided to reach out for help? And like sometimes when you talk to people, they go, oh, I've been thinking about this for three or four months. And these are sort of, they talk you through their stages of change of like, oh, I contemplated it here. And then I got to here and here. And then for other people, you talk about them, you talk to them. And it, it sounds like this very knee jerk, like, oh, there is a thing I don't like about myself and I need to fix it. That's why I'm here. You know, they might've gone to the beach and felt uncomfortable. They might've seen someone they care about or someone they know also meaningfully improve their rig. Um, and they're not like, I would argue you're not truly autonomous when you're making those knee jerk emotional reactions. Um, I'd argue that you probably need to sit down and think about those things, interrogate them, even challenge some of your thoughts um it's trendy at the moment to say that every thought you have is valid and meaningful and like i think they are in so much as the things you're feeling and experiencing um but understanding that that doesn't mean they're necessarily all rational or good for you um which is an important thing to note yeah i think you know i wanted to mention before like mac was saying about the, the sunday afternoon with the boys like there's there's two things I, I want to bring up here, and one of them is that like there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So it's like, yeah, you might solve this person's problem of helping them lose weight, but what are the trade-offs? What are the trade-offs for him then not going to the pub on a Sunday afternoon, or what are like what what is he essentially giving up, and is it really worth it? So we're again presenting those options, and they have the autonomy to choose their trade-offs. That's one thing, and the second thing is when we are, I guess. When someone feels controlled, even if we're not, even if the coach doesn't think that they're forcing someone to do things, when they feel controlled, that, that controlled sense of emotion, right, it actually leads to poorer outcomes and poorer psychological well-being. They can't sustain those behaviours. Again, like I said, reduced well-being, but also decreased engagement. So they're actually not going to adhere or stick to these certain things. If we can flip the script and have the clients be more autonomous, better outcomes, better well-being, it's more sustainable, right? And the client also becomes more resilient. Mm. I've got nothing to add to that. I agree. I agree. I, I, if I you hit the nail on the head there, Joshua. Yeah. I, if I may throw this one at the boys. You may. On the topic of Sunday Arvo beers, sacrifices, weight loss, no solutions, only trade-offs. Do you guys think there is a point at which sa sacrificing a degree of social health can result in a net positive in like a whole like capital H big picture health perspective? Because that's something that keeps me up at night, to be honest with you. I think, I think, yeah, there is. And I think the reason for that, because I think some people can go beyond what is their sweet spot and not really realize it. And pulling back from it gives them that opportunity to realize like, hey, I don't need to drink five nights a week to have a great social health. Or I'm actually don't even know if I want to hang out with people five days a week. And I think, I think 
creating an instance, like, like creating discrepancy, whether we're just talking to clients about their behaviors and identifying discrepancy between their behaviors and their goals or um, putting them in a situation where they live through discrepancy to what they were doing before, it provides a different angle that can make them more privy to where their sweet spot actually lies. And I think, you know, speaking to people about like, you know, living where I am right now and there's kind of young people living here in this house and everything and they, they all like some of them are quite social or what have you. And yeah, I think listening to them, it's like, it's very easy to get in this like tunnel vision of like socializing and drinking and like kind of, it just, it's kind of like a slippery slope. And again, like having that break from it, that like forced break, if you will, almost is like, oh, shit, like this is not actually serving me. Um, I don't need to socialize or indulge this much. So I think that's actually a really good point that you raised there, Tom. Can we improve someone's overall health even at the, the demise of one area to a degree, being, for example, in this instance, social health? Health. And I think the answer to that would be yes. And let's use another example. And I, I want to throw this example out to see what you guys think. So let's say, let's say you're working with like a big dog CEO. Like financial health is just off the Richter scale, super healthy from a financial perspective. But they, you know, their physical health sucks because they're like just not eating well. They're not putting time or mental resources into food. Um, their social, let's actually, let's just leave social health out of it. Let's just use. Their physical health is crap. Their wife hates them. So, their kids their hate wife them. hates them. Kids hate them. The whole feature, right? The full thing. Um, but their money situation is through off the Richter, through the through the roof. If we say if, if they get into a position where um, they realize that this is kind of like an issue, and then they start to pull back on the um, the work side of things, they therefore earn less money, but their um, their physical health has taken massive improvement. I think it all comes down to what is the net average or the net kind of like overall total health. And I still think that you're you're limited by your weakest link. But if someone in that situation where there's such an extreme discrepancy between financial health and physical health, you're kind of bringing things down a little bit. So the weakest link is still better than what it was originally even though you've seen the demise of something that was so out of balance. So really at the end of the day, like I think it actually comes down to having a degree of balance between the facets of total health or deep health. And I think that it's okay to have imbalance because it's going to be individual to the person. Like if someone genuinely loves bodybuilding and they live that lifestyle, like I know people who, who that's genuinely what gets them going. And I percent back them. They don't have much of a social life. Okay. Um, but that's, that's, so that's an imbalanced total health, but that aligns with what's important to them. So it's not an issue. Um, but there still is some degree of balance. If you're so skewed to the point where something is completely neglected, I just don't think that's conducive to a very happy life. Yeah. And I I think part of the neglect at the risk of being a parrot of myself, I think part of the neglect comes down and not actually asking the question of what matters. Um, I, I don't think there are many people who, when they are 80, will wish they had better glute striations. Like, I'm sure they exist. Um, And, look, the reality is, like, you could have the rug pulled out from you at any stage. Um, Like, you get hit by a car tomorrow, which isn't an endorsement for just, like, pursuing, like, physical pleasure. But 
I would argue that old mate who's a CEO who's really rich probably values the financial side of things right now because he feels like he never has enough and that's like the world he's been in for so long. But if he does a thought experiment of how am I going to feel in 40 years about this, there's probably going to be meaningful regret about not nourishing those relationships, not being healthier um, from like a physical perspective and all those other sort of things that you don't realise matter until you're robbed of them. Yeah, and you can't take it with you as well. So, yeah, like honestly, the, the amount of people that have said to me, like, oh, I wish I did more travel or I wish I enjoyed my younger years more, you know, like, and this is kind of a big fuel to me with my own travels, just being like, I don't care what the barrier is. I just think what will Mac think when he's like 60 years old? You know, now's the time, lock it in. And yeah, this is honestly fueled by so many relatives and people of that sort of 50 to 70 year old age bracket, just being like, just this is, you need to do more of that. Um, and that seems to be a consensus across the board that I've yeah. observed anyway. Yeah. And I think like, like Tom said before, I just don't think people take the time to answer the question or even like acknowledge that there is a question. I think that's something that we do quite well at FNC is like ask our clients, like, what do you value? What is What are the most important things in your life? And then how can we use nutrition to help you live live that kind of life as well and i think that's what does separate us from from other coaches in the industry that might be a bit more physique focused is they don't take those other factors of their life other things that they value and if they do value their social and financial health whatever it might be they may not take that into account with their coaching approach again they're coaching a problem but not the person again so um i think it's another really important thing to do if, um being the guy who really likes a beer, I want to talk about the whole beer situation on a Sunday afternoon, is like um, <laughs> maybe like identifying like how many beers could you have and still have a really good time and and, all, and also find the sweet spot between your social health. And look, if you're previously having 20 and then you go to 15, that's great. It's still a reduction. It's still improving your physical health somewhat, I believe. Um, but if you go from 10 to 10 to 5 or 5 to 3, like, identify which what's your purpose for alcohol and then try and match it match that purpose so like for me it's taste i love the taste of a beer but if i have 20 in a week i doubt that all 20 are for taste right so mm -hmm. my first port of call is to highlight the ones that i really do enjoy for the for the taste and they're the ones i want to keep in so for me it might be between three and six per week mm -hmm. not 20 okay so identify the purpose first and foremost and how can i find that sweet spot between my physical health and my social health I have you know that I had a beer on the weekend, Josh. You're going to be very proud of me. Wow. You leave it to the end of the podcast to tell me this. To drop That's the a, bombs, right? What did you That's have? That's a funny way to say so, vodka soda water, Mac. <laughs> what, did you, what was it? I had one of those better beers. You know, the one uh, that spider yeah. employs. Oh, here we go. Oh, it's not a real beer. I'm fucking Josh. Look at me with my craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you something. Uh, I mean... Like, I don't consume a beer because I think it's going to be low calorie or whatever. Yeah. But someone gave me this beer and they go, look, it's got 87 calories in it. And I was like, shit, that's actually a pretty calorie conscious beer. Yeah. The tax of shit. I thought, well, like, okay, I, okay, straight up, I talk about beer a lot on social media, make funny uh, jokes about Bogans drinking beer and that. I actually hate beer. I <laughs> never drink it. I think it's the worst tasting shit ever. Now... I actually think that that better beer was one of the most palatable beers that I've ever had. 
Oh. Still shit because beer's shit, in my opinion. But I thought it was very palatable. Maybe it's because it's basically water, according to Josh. Um, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm just going to throw that at me in a second. It's just lager. Oh, it's just water. It's just lager. No, it's I don't like lager. It's the taste. It's, yeah. Um, I... Yeah, but it, it tasted like a heaps normal, which is that alcohol-free beer. I've actually yeah. tried that. So I'm assuming it's not a very punchy beer. It doesn't have nah. much of a... I don't know what the actual beer terminology is for it, but it just... I'm, I'm assuming it's a bit of a pussy beer. You know, no, it's still, it's, beer. it's still got 1.1 standard drinks in there, so it's still got alcohol in there. It's just a... The taste, though. It doesn't have that, that punchy taste, like a it's beer, like more, that pretty... Like, think about coffee. Yeah. It's like you have strong coffee that's heavy hitting, like, you know, Italian coffee, and then you have, like, lighter coffee. Yeah. I feel like that beer is on the lighter end of the spectrum. But yeah, I yeah, found yeah. it much more enjoyable than any other beer I've ever had. Still not enjoyable, but I had it. I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the the way we fetishize the amount of calories in alcohol is really weird. Yeah. Because like you're drinking alcohol. Like I would I would make a case that on like a by dosage perspective, the alcohol itself is more impactful for your health than the, the cu- couple of hundred calories you're bringing in. Guys, didn't you read my yeah. post last week? Didn't you read my post on FNC last week? Didn't you see my post on um, uh, old mate who's like, just track your Bud Lights? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, like, like you said, Tom, it's, it's actually the alcohol that's the issue. Like, And this is coming from a guy who really likes likes beer. Like it, the impact that that has on your physical health is it's not very good. Like it's but not also, just the calories. Yeah, but also like your like I I remember talking to a client once about this. It was like, oh, like how should I approach alcohol? And I was like, oh, how many drinks do you think you're gonna have? They said, oh, I'll probably have like three or four. I was like, just just do it. Um, yeah. like just have like, three or four. Yeah, but but also like I don't think the problem is the calories and the alcohol. The problem is are you having a kebab on the way home and then having like KFC for breakfast the next morning and you've consumed 500 calories of alcohol, but that's a net 3000 calorie endeavor um, plus the effects of the alcohol or are you, are you skipping training the next day or not that there's anything wrong with skipping training. And things like recovery. Yeah. If you look at it from a performance perspective, because we've, we've just focused that on the calories and the weight loss outcomes, but like we've got to remember that we work with athletes as well. And I think that's a big thing, like the the recovery impairment and the preparedness yeah. for that next session. As yeah. as as an interesting N of one, I find like when I was doing powerlifting and I was really unfit, I was about fifteen kilos heavier than I am now. Yeah, fourteen, fifteen. And when I drink, my heart rate variability and heart rate look like they used to when I was fourteen, fifteen kilos heavier. Wow. compared to now so like like that i don't think that means anything necessarily but it is worth thinking about hey like that is a massive recovery cost you're potentially putting into your body as well mm-hmm. yeah and just like and your, I, your, your sleep your focus the next day as well and and that's why i am basically an adonis because i don't drink beer and uh you know it's easy you just gotta not drink it josh just don't drink like, it. Yeah. Just don't drink it. It's 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 easy. What do you value more? A beer. What you don't value competing in 
bodybuilding shows like me and looking as jacked as lean as humanly possible. Hey, what's the ICN? Uh, was it ICN bikini figure? What What did you compete in, Mac? Uh, men's bikini. Ah, uh, yeah, nice. But you wore board shorts. Yeah. Apparently, quads aren't a part of your body when you're a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah, that was what a time to be alive. Wow. Anyhow. Ooh, but, but, like, I think I I don't want this conversation to come off as, like, just a slamming critique of bodybuilding um, because I think you could definitely indulge in it and, like, make sacrifices and pay the cost for that if that is a thing that matters for you and if that's a thing you've actually, like, decided to do very deliberately and i because i think you get two people on stage for two very different reasons and like the the total impact of those behaviors is very different between the two of them yeah i think if someone genuinely like values the crap out of being a bodybuilder i think it's awesome like i'll name names straight up like i'm friends with good friends with brandon kempter the guy lives and breathes it and it genuinely aligns with what's important to him i 100 back the fact that he tracks his macros like forever or whatever yeah. like 100% back it because it's truly important to him that's what he gets him going yeah and then okay if we're going to round up the the podcast on that topic like if if you are a coach and bodybuilding or your physique is really really important to you that is great but it means you just need to ask your clients what is really really important to you and make sure that you match the coaching approach to what is important to them and it helps them live their best life that way yeah, and not assuming that they have the exact same values as you and the exact same situation and that what, you know, it's easy for you isn't easy for them. And, you know, it's always difficult to put yourself in the shoes of a client when you haven't actually been through it yourself. It requires a lot of conscious thought and effort and you might not always understand it. Um, sometimes I wrestle with it, you know, myself. Like I'm I'm displaying empathy, but I, I, I can't understand like why you're finding this difficult, but I'm – I know that you're finding it difficult for a reason. You're not finding it difficult for nothing. Um, And yeah, I think, so this like, I guess to round off like a bit of a take home is for me, like the physique, like like, having a physique, good physique does not make you a good coach, but I think it can contribute a small piece to the puzzle because it shows that you've, you know, you've, you've been in the trenches with your nutrition, but it can also have a trade-off with lack of empathy, especially if you've come from a place of being that fit, active person all through your childhood who's loved sport and exercise, um, especially in those situations. I think it can create um, difficulties with uh, empathy and being a client-centered coach. Um, but, yeah, I, I would – if someone has never, you know, worked on their nutrition – but they've just, you know, it's sort of like having someone who is a driving instructor, but they've never driven a car. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to go straight up here and say I would never hire that driving instructor. Um, so I guess to kind of bring it back to nutrition, I, I do think that having a reasonably, relatively like respectable physique is is a good trait and a positive trait that can have a positive contrib- contribution to your abilities or likelihood of you being a good coach. Yes. Yeah, you I, think, whole, I think it matters. Yeah, but the coach has, you got to take the whole person as the coach as well. And that actually reminds me of something that I, I learned last week in, in Gary's uh, workshop was that your knowledge has a small impact, a small positive impact on, on your clients, right? But it's also only a small one. Like your interpersonal skills yeah. weigh far more, right? So same thing. Like So your knowledge may help your, your physique mm. and your lived experience so you know what to do if you've been there. 
But again, like you said, it's a small positive impact. Like your interpersonal skills, your empathy, they make up a much bigger piece of who you are as a coach and how effective you are. Even as being a personal trainer back in the day, I'll tell you right now that the coaches who were the most successful, the coaches who made people happy were not the ones who had the best knowledge. They also weren't the ones with the best physiques. They were the ones who made people feel good when they walked into the gym. They were the ones who made people feel welcome. They turned you know, their shitty day at work into a positive end to the day and they walk out of that gym, go home to their family or whatever in a much more positive headspace. They were the best personal trainers. And those scenes are separate to knowledge and their physique. Not to say that those things don't matter, but let's just get a bit of an order of importance or at least a, a portion of the pie type perspective going on here. And like, it can't be overstated that it breaks my heart as a nerd how little use knowledge is sometimes. Um, like, if you if you truly have like a good grasp of the fundamentals, and there's probably like there's probably like four or five things to know, right? Like to sort of know in absolute terms, you know, like. Calorie balance exists. We should eat enough protein to improve body composition. Fiber is broadly a good thing. Um, you need to train hardish in order to improve, and training should have enough specificity to your goal. Like, if you know those five things, like, all of a sudden you can answer almost all the questions. Uh, um, but the reality is, like, no one cares or wants to pay to hear me talk about like enzymes. Or like I, I accidentally started talking about logar- logarithmic transformations of data yesterday. Like no one cares. It's not useful. It doesn't make anyone's life better. Um, but being able to listen and being able to do like the uh, the Gary style workshops around behavior change and care and the the soft skills of coaching there matter far more. Yeah. I, I you know, the coach that come through the mentorship at the Hero Academy, they sometimes feel like they don't know enough. I'm like, trust me, you do. Like, you, you know enough to help most people. Like, Fuck, you, I feel like I don't know enough. Yeah. But if you, if you, like, if you know the basics, right, honestly, it's if you know the big rocks for nutrition and training, you've done SNA, you've done probably precision nutrition, right? You know enough about nutrition to help most people, right? And then with, like, this is why I think having, not having your books full with clients is really important. So you have time to upskill and research if you need to. If a client asks you a question you don't know about, go and, go and research. It's okay not to know off the top of your head. But also have the humility to talk to someone smarter than you. Yeah, um, yeah. Like the something I find really freeing is the ability to tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, this is way more your wheelhouse than mine because it lets you be good at what you're good at. Um, like you, you don't have to, like your job isn't to absolutely save everyone. And if you think there is someone who does a better job than you, it may, it makes a big difference to be secure enough to go, oh, like, I think Mac might be able to help you better than I do because he knows way more about surfing or like whatever, whatever example you want to use. And also, like, information doesn't change people. It's actually the implementation, right, of the information, right? So that's what that's what a coach does. A coach really does help with implementation. So we need to figure out, okay, understand the client, collaborate with strategies, all that client-centered coaching approach style coaching, right? That's how we help people. It doesn't just come through in improving how much we know about nutrition and training. 
It's about how we can help them apply. That's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. Great, Understandable. Yeah. Have a nice day. Uh, any other... Understood. Anything else, lads? We're good to go? No, I'm just going to say that I think this has put things really into perspective. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm firm on my stance that having a physique, a good physique, or at least a relatively not impressive, but just, you know, you have some kind of physique that is respectable, I guess, is, is would be the right phrase, although it's still so subjective and Shannon's probably just going to give me a gobful about that. But anyway. Um, you just conform to societal ideals, Mac. You <laughs> suck it. I, I think... You just want to be a status symbol. <laughs> I think that it matters, but, you know, relative importance, and I think it's the same situation for knowledge. Um, I think all of these things can contribute and do matter. Um, like, if you ask me, is it important to have knowledge? Yes. Is it important to have a reasonably okay physique to show that you've, you know, you've been through it to a degree? Yes. Um, but I think it's it's still small portions of the pie as far as what makes up a good coach. And I think, like, even drawing back from my personal training days, like, yeah, it's just crazy that, like I said, the trainers that were most successful who got the best results, who made people the happiest, like, did all of those things were never the ones with the best physiques or the most knowledge or the most nerdy attitudes. Like I think about my days, like observing other PTs in Bondi and like, you just get people who were like positive, like really positive dudes who'd like be like a light in the room and they do so well. They would be like the most successful personal trainers by far in the gym. Um, That's not to say that they had empathy or they would get people results because this is the thing, like get people better results slash have the most client satisfaction I think in nutrition, it's a bit different. Like people are, you know, we're not seeing people in real life and kind of getting to know them at the point where like they'll tell us about all their life problems and we're seeing them three times a week. Like they are here because they want to achieve a a specific outcome. And I think like whilst I'm not to say that people don't want to achieve that in personal training setting, I just think in nutrition setting, it's more geared towards that. So it's not just about being a happy person who people want to talk to. Uh, but I do think that whole interpersonal behavioral, like being able to talk to people and, and build that connection and listen to them and, you know, hear them and apply thinking to their situation. Like for me, that's kind of like the big rock among little pebbles or, or maybe not the big rock, but the bigger rock among all the little pebbles that make up a good coach. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. No, like I said, the, the, it's the interpersonal skills that uh, I think you they can't that... teach that. Well, you can. Well, you, you, could, well, you yeah. can't teach yeah. it. You, you can, but you can't teach it like, you know, in like, sorry, let me re say that. You, you don't learn it when you go and do formal education. That's what I was trying to get. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have to actually go out and seek that kind of training yeah. and upskilling. And that comes through deliberate practice. Like that's, and it just doesn't, it doesn't just come from coaching. You need to actually learn it and then apply it. Same with everything. Like you could have the knowledge about clients and a coaching, but unless you practice it through consults, then you, you don't actually do it. Exactly. And that's that walk the walk thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, you've taken the knowledge that you've learned with Gary or Josh Smith from Hero Nutrition Mentor. <laughs> Plug. And you've actually gone, you've actually gone and applied it. Yeah. Um, because I think like you can learn that stuff, but unless you've actually done it, like like I said, you know, you can watch all the videos on how to drive a manual car. But unless you actually go and sat in the car and done it, you're never going to be a great driver. You're never going to be a Formula One car driver. That's it. All right, let's wrap up on that analogy. I think we've wrapped up three times, but that's it. It's all right. We can keep wrapping up if you want. 
As always, if you want to work with us uh, through through FNC, we have sports developer coaching. Um, you can click the link in the show notes. Um, we have three levels one on one coaching. If you want to become a better coach, uh, then you can do one on one mentoring through the Hero Academy. Thank you. Ooh. Thank you.